All right, gentlemen, well, good morning. Great to be with you all here for Summit. And uh, today we're going to be going through Romans 6, which is, just to give you a little bit of a preview, it is a chapter in the Bible that completely changed the course of my life. This chapter is uh, dear to me and what God did in me. So my name is John Elmore. I'm the director of Regeneration and also serve with the community team. And today I want to take you through Romans 6 by way of Haiti. So Haiti lays claim to two things in my life. One, it has the most beautiful beach that I have ever seen in my life. Uh, more beautiful than ones that I've seen throughout you know, my childhood, adulthood, traveling to Europe, Caribbean, Florida, U.S. continental, like most beautiful beach, period, that I have ever seen. Pristine. Not a single person on it for like hundreds of yards in either direction. It was absolutely incredible. And it may surprise you because you're like, wow, I've never heard of uh, anyone going to Haiti for tourism. I wasn't there for that. That's why it's one of the most beautiful beaches. No one goes there for tourism. So they're just like vacant, just God's creation. More about that later. The second thing that Haiti holds in my heart and mind is the creepiest place that I have ever been. So in 2008, I lived in Haiti for the summer. Uh, there was a food crisis in 2008. This is two years before the earthquake that all of us are familiar with. And during this food crisis, the nation basically ran out of food. And so all the people congregated to Port-au-Prince, the capital, and were rioting against the government, breaking out windows. I mean, I'm talking armed guards and bars on grocery stores with United Nations peacekeeping tanks military vehicles and soldiers with automatic weapons patrolling the streets of the country to protect what little food remained. The citizens were left to eat mud cookies, sun-baked mud. They called it bleach stomach because they were so hungry, so malnourished, that they would eat anything because it felt like someone had poured bleach into their stomach. The government, um, because of their selfishness, was oppressing the people while they thrived, and malnourishment, especially of children, was at an all-time high. Children dying by the dozens every single day, especially under five. They're malnourished and dying. So when we heard about this, we went to Haiti, began a, malnutri a malnutrition clinic. I have zero medical background, but uh, to show what God can do, it's about to celebrate its 10th anniversary, this malnutrition clinic. And it was just, it was basically this little treatment of medicinal peanut butter and antibiotic dewormer and a water purifier. And if kids would do this program for like eight weeks, it would reverse malnutrition from deathbed to like running around playing soccer in eight weeks and they would never be malnourished again. And then we would hand out gospel tracts to the mothers as they would come, develop a relationship with them, invite them to church. Uh, so God still does miracles because I was part of a malnutrition clinic with, uh, I mean, never any background in that. But the orphanage that I lived on, back to why the creepiest place I've ever been, would often run out of water. There's not clean water throughout much of Haiti. We didn't have any kind of running water on the, the compound, this huge, uh, probably 200 orphans and children living at this orphanage where we ran the clinic and the malnutrition and so when we would run out of water, you got 200 people thirsty, it was a big problem. And so at night, uh, in Haiti, where there's not any electricity, there's very, very little electricity, I should say. So when it's dark, it's dark. 
we would load up in this truck, this big lorry, and we'd take this huge uh, black plastic, they called it a, a shadow dough, which means a house for water. It was this huge water tank, you know, think about a Texas ranch. Loaded up onto the truck, took four of us to carry it. We would drive to a graveyard. Now, this graveyard in Haiti, uh, if you've been to New Orleans, it's above ground, like mausoleums that are handmade and hand-painted, these, these vibrant Caribbean colors. Uh, where they will bury the dead. So they're above ground and they look like little houses. Uh, And in that place, people lived. They lived in the mausoleums because it's a poor country. Many of the people there are living in mud huts and stick huts and straw huts. And so here are these basically free houses, these mausoleums uh, that are built, these crypts that are built for the dead and people would live in them, which made it increasingly creepy. And so we drive this truck in, and people are kind of startled by it and waking up and coming out of the graves, which is a little alarming, uh, something I'd never seen before. And we park this lorry, and and we got to pull this hose that we brought to a spigot in the graveyard, which now, as I think back about it, I've never told the story before. I'm like, I think we were stealing water from whatever grave property that was. Like, I don't know that it was a funeral home or anything. It was just land. But anyway, it had water. Crank that spigot, and then they would lift buckets up to me. I'd dump them in this huge shadow dough. Well, as I'm doing this, I'm like dumping the water, pulling the buckets. People are coming out and whatnot. Well, it's a country that largely practices voodoo. And I've been warned about this. And here comes this voodoo priest wearing like a white loincloth and kind of dancing around and, and starts to systematically light fires around our truck. Like he's doing some kind of ritual specifically around me and the truck. And so the next time uh, Pastor Henry comes and brings me a bucket, I'm like, hey, PH, Pastor Henry, hey, uh, there's a guy lighting fires around our truck? And he just goes, well, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Dumps the water and just walks away. I'm like, okay. Wasn't entirely comforting. Uh, It was like my first week there. But most beautiful place, creepiest place which is indicative of Haiti. Here's the thing. The nation of Haiti used to be called the Jewel of the Caribbean. Napoleon owned it. It was his. Jewel of the Caribbean. Two-fifths of the world's sugar was produced there, one-half of the world's coffee. This was the richest nation within the Caribbean or territory owned by Napoleon. And they were farming it. They had brought in slaves from Africa, horribly mistreated them, the white colonialist from France. And in 1791, leading all the way to 1804, there was a revolt, the first and only successful slave revolt that overthrew the repressing power and sustained power. It is the only slave revolt in the history of US to which the slaves oppressed and mistreated took the nation pushed out the oppressing country and laid claim to sovereignty over their new land. That's incredible. It's never happened before. It'll likely never happen again, especially in this day and age with modern warfare. But it was a slave revolt in which they captured the nation, pushed out Napoleon, who was ruling much of the world at that point in time, and and has kept the country since. And you would think that they would become now one of the wealthiest nations, having produced all that sugar, all that coffee. Instead, because of leadership that was unrighteous, selfish, and in turn oppressive, even of their own people, the nation is the poorest in the Western Hemisphere. 
And when you go there, economically, it is the saddest place I've ever been. But from a people standpoint, they are my favorite people in the world. Like I said, I lived there for a summer. I love Haitian people. I picked up a lot of Creole and could speak their language. It's a, it's a just kind of a, a simple French dialect that's really intuitive. And I love those people so much. And so my encouragement to you specifically through Mission of Hope, one of Watermark's partners, would be to go there, pick up one of these trips, go there and see this incredible people, the devastation of what oppression can do, but the life that the gospel can bring through our brothers and sisters in Haiti. There was a president in the 60s named, named Papa Doc, Francois Duvalier, Papa Doc. He was a past voodoo priest that became a president. Like you can just see this lineage of oppression that has wrecked Haiti. And so what happened is they gained control from France and then it was ruled by kind of oppressive elite and it was passed through this family system of hierarchy and other countries still tried to oppress it despite their freedom. But because there was no infrastructure, no plumbing, no electricity, no gas or utilities, the people had to sustain themselves. And so there was deforestation originally because of the sugarcane fields, and then furthermore, just to sustain and cook their food, they would, the, the people of Haiti would cut down what trees remained in order to cook and boil, food, boil water, make food. And so from deforestation, they created an ecological nightmare, not knowing what they were doing. It's a mountainous land. As they cut down trees, the hurricane season would come, the rainwater would pour down, take away all the topsoil, which would make it impossible to farm. The jewel of the Caribbean, where you could grow anything, the coffee beans, the sugar cane, all these plantations, all the topsoil ran away. It's now a rocky crag, much in part, except for the valleys. So you can't farm anything there. The other thing that it did is all that topsoil ran right into the ocean. And so what should be a thriving marine ecology is devastated. There's not coral, there's not fish, there's nothing, nothing. So they don't have fish, you can't grow anything. It's a rocky crag, no water, no electricity. And so they're they are a people who, um, who know suffering well, but the gospel is reaching in there in great, in great ways. And I'd say this, to connect it to Romans 6, in the same way, Romans 6 is this litany that says that we have been rescued from slavery to sin, that we were slaves to sin and Satan, and that we've been freed through Jesus Christ, having been crucified with him, buried, raised again to walk in newness of life. And yet, like Haiti, I would say that myself, and I would imagine many of you included, because it's the common experience of the Christian life, that though we have been freed, we are still subject to unrighteousness and oppression. Not possession, because now we are Christ, but oppression, because of the whims of our flesh, temptations whispered by Satan and the ways of this world. And Romans 6 is a path to freedom, that that's not your lot in life and you don't have to live that way because Christ has bought from you, for you, freedom from sin and Satan. And so today, again, by way of Haiti, we're gonna go through Romans 6 with three checks. We're gonna have a zombie check, a machete check, and a gut check. So, starting in the first, zombie check. Now, Haitians believe in zombies. 
straight up believe in zombies, but they are not the zombies that we believe in because of Hollywood. So we believe that a zombie, if you not that we believe this, but everybody's ready for the zombie apocalypse, right? Like even the CDC and our government has actually written a zombie apocalypse thing. Google it, it's true. They have wasted our taxpayer dollars on what to do if there is a zombie apocalypse. It's ridiculous, thank you US government. Uh, in Hollywood, they're depicted as dead people that rise up, you know, flesh-eating, all that. Uh, in Haiti, they believe that a zombie is someone that a voodoo priest has taken a powder that is a poison, thrown it, or gotten that person to ingest it somehow. It gives them the appearance of death. It slows their heart rate and their breathing rate to where their family finds them, presumes that they're dead, gives them a burial service, and then after that burial service is over, the voodoo priest goes, he's watching all this, digs up their body. That person now, in a conscious state, sees that voodoo priest and, and, and is under a trance and thinks that they are their master, that they have rescued them and are indebted to them and are in this like trance, this drug-induced trance, and they follow around that voodoo priest as a slave for the rest of their life. The voodoo priest feeds them, but they're kind of in this zombie state. Someone traveled there and wrote this... Uh, I think it was called Magical Island or something. They wrote a fictional novel about the zombie, produced it in the US, Hollywood picked it up and has now created, that's where the zombie came from. But and as I lived on that orphanage, one of the boys there, I was going out to get water, he's like, be careful you don't become a zombie. I was like, okay, great, I'll be really careful that I don't become a zombie. And he's like, no, and he explains it to me. And as I come to find out, like the nation believes this. They believe that Papa Doc Duvalier, had a, had a troop that were called the Tauntaun Makuts. There was a troop of zombies that lived and like took out these heinous crimes, the enforcers of Haiti, these zombies, this force, this militant force that would kind of keep Haiti unchecked. There was a part of the Haitian Criminal Code, Article 246. It spells out the illegality of creating a zombie. This is in their constitution and criminal code. You can't make zombies. It's a real thing. Romans 6, 6 through 7 is why I tell you this. Because I think like Haiti, although they have gained their freedom from slavery, they still live in, in fear of slavery to another. They're free from France and they still think and believe that they can be enslaved to a voodoo priest, enslaved to evil, and forced to become this agent of evil under the control of another, and so do we. We think it's crazy, we're like, what? That's written into their criminal code that you can't make a zombie? They really believe that you can become a zombie under a voodoo priest? We believe the same thing. We believe the exact same thing as Christians and I'll unpack that for you, is that we've been freed in Christ, and yet many of us are like the walking dead under the trance of another, and though we are not dead, we act as though we are, and we perform the acts, whims, and will of another, be it Satan or our flesh. Romans 6, 6 through 7, we know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from 
sin. Men, let me read the death language of Romans 6. I'm gonna read the words that say, die, death, crucified, dead, from Romans 6 in rapid succession. This is from the first 10 verses. Died, death, buried, death, dead, death, crucified, done away with, died, died, dead, die, death, death, died, died, dead. 16 times in the first 10 verses of Romans 6, 16 times God drills into our mind that the slave to sin that you and I used to be is dead, like dead, crucified, buried. And so that leaves you begging the question, well, then who am I? You are raised again, no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. Raised again specifically to walk in newness of life. Never to be in a trance as a zombie state under the influence of another like those voodoo priests. Now to us would be Satan, our flesh, or the world to be following those other ways. That old man has been crucified. You've been freed, just like those Haitian slaves, and now the land is yours, that you would never be enslaved to another. The old man is dead, 16 times dead. Such emphasis that the old slave to sin is dead, never to be enslaved to another, never to be enslaved to another. Such freedom there. When I read that verse, there's a word called appropriation. It's a theological term that when there is a promise or a truth of scripture, you claim it for your own. That every single one of us, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, believing that he died for your sins and rose again from the dead, if you've placed your faith in him for that, then all of you is holding a check, a check that says, Dan, you are no longer a slave to sin. Tyler, you're no longer a slave to sin. Big Mac, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're holding that check, and you need only cash it. But all of you must cash it. That's the appropriation, to believe personally that this truth is not some far-off theological truth 2,000 years ago that you can study in seminary, but that this is mine that Jesus bought that for you and for me, that I am no longer a slave to sin. And as a recovering alcoholic, I told you this chapter transformed my life and I speak passionately about it. When I read those words, because I was going to AA and it was like, man, white knuckle it, stay sober, call upon your higher power who they were praying to the Pacific Ocean doorknobs and like craziness. And I'm like, man, this isn't enough. A doorknob's not gonna free me from alcoholism. I've been drinking for 12 years straight. I can't, go, I can't go a weekend without drinking. I need something bigger and better than a doorknob or the Pacific to get me free from this. And when I read these words that John Elmore, you're no longer a slave to sin because of Jesus, man, I cashed that check and I walked free. Now I've still got that little voodoo priest following me saying, I'll give you, I'll give you freedom from that anxiety. I'll give you relief from that stress. Take a drink. But I now say, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. I am slave to another, to Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so I'd ask you, 
If you are in Christ and you have been set free, just like the nation of Haiti set free, where are you still walking like a dead man in your life? Where are you still in fear of walking like a dead man, just like a Haitian under the control of a voodoo priest as a zombie? Because we all have an area of life. We're like, Jesus, you can have my eternity. You can have my salvation. But man, not my finances. Not my job. Not my marriage. That's still under the influence of evil. Think about it and talk about it in your groups. Because we all have them. For me, I'm still under the influence of uh, my flesh, comforts. That looks like food. That looks like hitting snooze. That looks like... uh, you know, just binging on something on entertainment, Amazon Prime, rather than feeding my soul, that's where I'm still under the influence of evil and walking like a dead man instead of the freed slave that I am. Machete check. There's something really alarming about Haiti, if and when you go there, is that everyone walks around with two-foot swords. When I first arrived there and you walk through any of the villages, not so much Port-au-Prince because it's a city, but any of the villages, I mean, it is, it is the, the machete is what the smartphone is here in the U.S. Like, it's a tool that we use. It's helpful. You need it. Everyone's got one, uh, and it can be used for good or bad. But it's an agricultural island, much in part still, and so you need a machete for all the, you know, farming that's done there, the cultivation, so everyone's got one. Well, on the weekends, I would take these little gospel tracts that were written in Creole, and I would run through kind of these mountain trails with my little 10-year-old translator, Wesh, and we'd just go running, and we'd talk to people, and I'd I'd say in my broken Creole, you know, Moigan, un petit bib, pu'u, I have a little Bible for you, and I'd hand them out and pray for the people, and then he would do any more translation that needed to happen there. Well, we come over this hill, and there's three men there farming, and they've got the machetes, and at this point, I'm two months into the summer, I'm numb to machetes, I just see them like iPhones. And I run up, and, and they start speaking in Creole really fast, and I can't pick up any of it. And I'm like, Wesh, come on. And he, go, and he just like stops dead in his tracks and like backs up. And I'm like, Wesh, come on, let's, let's go. Because we've been walking up to everybody. And he's like, no, 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 we have to stay. We have to go back right now. We can't go any further. And I'm like, Wesh, come on, let's go. And he's like, we have to go back right now. And I was like, why? He said, they, come, they say if you take one more step, they'll cut you into bits. I was like, good translator, good, let's go, let's go. <laughs> Let's go, like I told you. They were like holding these machetes up and, and shouting and whatnot, uh, which I probably should have gotten by context clues that uh, they didn't want me to come further. But, but a machete is used for good or evil. It's the same tool. It's just a machete. Pick one up at Academy or Ace Hardware for 10 bucks, and it will be used for a weapon of evil or a tool of good and cultivation, the only difference, the only difference that determines the good or evil of a machete is the heart of the one who holds it. That is the only difference. I walked past a thousand machetes that summer. Not a single one of them hurt me. Those would have. It's the heart of the beholder. So it is with our bodies. Romans 6, 12 through 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. There's the machete analogy. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. There's more freedom from slavery. And your members, 
think machete, to God as instruments for righteousness. Men, our bodies, our mind, our eyes, our hands, everything in our body is a machete that can be used for good or evil depending on the condition of our heart, the beholder of those things. Your hands can be used for porn and masturbation. Your eyes can be used either to be shepherd's eyes to care for another or wolf eyes to lust after another and take what is not yours from a woman or even a brother. Your mind can be used for covetousness or it can be used to further the kingdom and love. Your feet can take you into places to share the gospel, to hand out tracts, to help a hand, to offer uh, minister to the sick, or it can take you to places you shouldn't be. Every single body part is a machete, can be used for good or evil, and it all hinges upon the condition of your heart and whether you are yielded to the Spirit, filled by the Spirit in that day, or if you are living according to the flesh, the world, and the whims of Satan. That is what will determine it. Seven months ago, I got really sick of fighting with my wife. We, we, we just would argue, like a lot. You know, we got little kids in the house, we're not sleeping, a lot of selfishness, like, hey, can you change the diaper? When I'm like, you know, trying to change another kid's diaper, and it's like, are you serious? Do you see what I'm doing right now? Or, or vice versa, you know, some kid cries in the night at 2 a.m., then another one cries at 3 a.m., and it becomes this like, I got up last time, yeah, but I'm nursing, and it's like, we're just fighting a lot. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm sick of fighting with my wife. I was using my machete in my mind of my mouth and my, uh, to tear down my wife and to bring disunity in my marriage. And so I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. We'd always say like, man, I never want to fight with you again for the rest of my life. And then we'd fight again a week later. And I thought, you know what? God delivered me from alcohol. I bet he can deliver me from arguing with Laura. And here's the funny thing. I never, I never told her what, I've, what, I, what I did or what I'm doing. I just started doing it. I started getting on my knees every day, just like I did when I was trying to get sober. I'm like, Lord, I can't stay sober, but you can keep me sober. You're God of all. You say you've set me free, free from sin, so you can keep me sober today. So I started doing the same thing. I'm like, Lord, I don't want to argue with my wife today. Will you keep me loving my wife today with my mind and my words, help me to serve her, die to myself and to my kids? Will you help me do that? for 24 hours, I know to say to do it for the rest of my life, uh, you promised daily bread, not lifelong bread, so if you give me daily bread to not argue with my wife, and guess what? I've been arguing with my wife in seven months because I started using my machete of my mind and my mouth for good instead of for evil, but, but I can't do that on my own strength. By my own strength, I'll argue with my wife. By God's strength, it will be a tool of cultivation and good and a harvest. So what part of your body are you using as a machete for evil rather than for good? Thirdly, gut check. We ran out of orf uh, we ran out of orphanage. We ran out of water a lot on that orphanage. 200 people, you get pretty thirsty. We ran out of water one day. And we had these, like I said, these big tanks beside our house that was for showering. They made it clear that's only for showering. But I'm the one that filled the tanks with these, uh, it was non-potable water. Uh, the water that came out of the ground, you could shower in it, but if you poured it on plants, the plants would die. It had such high salt content because it was close to the ocean. Well, I was like, you know what? Salt content, I mean, that's not gonna kill you. I was thirsty. So I filled up my Nalgene because when you put it out of the spigot, it was odorless, colorless, tasteless, had all the properties of water. So I'm like, you know what? A little salt, that's fine. 
drank it. And I was like, ooh, man, I don't feel so good. Like, like it felt like I had a brick in my stomach. And then just like, I don't know how, how much longer, but I mean, I was in bed then for like three days straight, fever, I mean, vomiting. I was like, if I didn't stop, you know, there weren't IVs or whatnot, I was gonna be dehydrated like out of the country. Well, at the end of the summer, um, they were like, hey, before y'all leave, could you drain the shadow does and clean them? And we're like, yeah, sure. We were doing anything we could to help them. Drain the shadow does, unscrew the big top on, on the hob, shine a flashlight down in there. Oh. Dead birds, dead frogs, and tadpoles, like, <laughs> flipping around. I was like, awesome. I drank dead bird, fish, and tadpole water. No wonder I got sick. I'm surprised I'm not dead. Like I'd been drinking this like parasite-ridden, I mean like worms, sick water that had just been like concentrated as all the death gathered there and it filtered through it like a coffee maker into my Nalgene. And we do that every day. Romans 6, 21 through 6, 22. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things you are now ashamed of. For the end of those things is death. But that you have now been set free from sin and become slaves to God and the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. What benefit, another translation, Romans 6, 21 says, what benefit did you reap from those things you're now ashamed of? Those things lead to death. And so, men, we've all got thirsts. We have thirsts that are, frankly, God-given thirsts. But if we fulfill those with an ungodly way of sin, it's gonna lead to death, just like me drinking that water. I should have just waited. We had fresh water later that night, but I wouldn't wait. I let my flesh guide my decision, and I drank what I shouldn't have drank, what I knew better to drink, what I'd been told not to drink, and it led to death. And all of us, you're all gonna be thirsty today. Whether it's, well, you can think about the ways that you're gonna be thirsty. But you all know you're gonna be thirsty for status, for money, for pleasures of the flesh, whatever it might be. And look, God gave us taste buds. He gave us sexual organs. There are uh, pleasures of the flesh that God said, hey, I created this. You're not Buddhists. I made pleasure. But you find that pleasure in a godly way. You wait on him to quench that thirst and you don't take that death-filled thirst, Romans 6, 21, and self-actualize it. You wait on God for it. And if you're single, that thirst is for at least sexual pleasure is gonna be a long wait until he fulfills that. But you wait on him or it leads to death. And the other thing that you do is you play the tape forward. Like, like, just think about it. A lot of times, I mean, just, yeah, I told you I was looking at a, a whiskey ad just last week. Man, play the tape. What's gonna happen if I drink? What's gonna happen if I drink that? What's gonna happen if I drink that water that's filled with dead, decaying things? Man, I'm probably gonna get sick. That's probably gonna be really bad. That's probably gonna sideline me from a while from the mission that I'm supposed to be on. So talk in your groups about what thirst you have and how you can wait on God. And then finally and quickly, heart check. This is a picture of a, a voodoo, I don't know, voodoo art. Don't Google voodoo art. I saw some of the darkest images I have ever seen. This was the most safe one that I could have put on the screen. But what that represents, it's not purely evil, is it? 
You see the symbol of the cross there, a Christian symbol. It's syncretism. See, voodoo, they say of Haiti, it's 100% Catholic. Sorry, it's 50% Catholic and 100% voodoo. Syncretism. 50% Catholic, 100% voodoo. And they would say, God is good, but voodoo is quicker. And I think we believe the same thing. That's how we live our lives. Where we're like, God, you're good. Save me from hell when I die. And I'm gonna do my own thing today. I'm gonna do my own thing. You're not Lord of my life. You're Lord of some areas, but I'm Lord of this. And that's syncretism, a blending of religions. And you see it all throughout voodoo, where there are these Christian symbols and then evil and darkness, but it's a blend as if they can have both. So from that, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's two titles there for Jesus, Christ and Lord. Christ meaning Savior, Messiah, who will save you from sin and death eternally, from hell. But Lord is a different word. That's a different title. Master, bondservant. Just like those Haitians who had been set free from the oppressor, we have been set free from sin and Satan, but we have to in turn become the bondservant or slave of Christ. And if we don't, then we're still a slave to sin. And so you must have both, him be Savior and Lord. That changed my life when I grasped that, when I finally said, Jesus, you can not only have my eternity, you can have my today for the rest of my life. You get everything. Be Lord of my life. And that is the heart check, men. Are you living syncretistically? You want him to be your savior, but you or sin are still Lord. Surrender all. He's either Lord of all or not at all. And there is freedom to be a slave to righteousness. Let me pray. Lord, guide the time today as we talk about how we're using the machetes you've given us where we're living like a dead man, the thirst that we have that we need to wait upon you. And if anyone has not yet trusted you to be both Lord and Savior, may it be today that they could walk in freedom forever and every day of their life. In Jesus' name, amen.